Well, hello, everybody, and welcome. Welcome in the live auditorium. Good to see you, and good to also have together gathered the folks in the classic venue. Welcome to you and on the Moon Campus. Good to have you tuned in and uh, worshiping together with one another today and with all of us, the church gathered together in different locations, and for those of you online as well, we're glad that you have found your way to this time with one another also. So as we get started here today, I've got uh, something just to share with you, and that is that I don't know if you've noticed it or not, but sometimes people disagree with one another. (laughs) Yeah, I I think that we already know that. Now, when it comes to disagreeing with one another, sometimes that disagreement or sorting out who's right and who's wrong isn't all that big big a deal, but sometimes the stakes are higher. Like when you try to figure out which is the best Girl Scout cookie right? This is something that's on my mind because it's been in the news lately, and I don't know if you've seen it, but apparently this is Girl Scout cookie season, and so they've been all these debates about, well, which is the best Girl Scout cookie? And I thought, well, we don't need to look and read all of that. We can just decide for ourselves, can't we? And so I think that that's what we're going to do. We're just going to figure out what do we think is the best Girl Scout cookie. Now, there are actually 12 different options that you have this year, 12 different kinds of cookies that you can buy, I decided to eliminate 10 of those (laughs) because I wanted to, all right? So you get to choose between two, two that are very popular, all right? Your choices are going to be either the Tagalongs, which is the, you can't vote yet, which, which is the peanut butter patty, you apparently you already know that, between that and the Thin Mint, all right? So Stop voting until I tell you to. All right, so those are the two that you can vote on, all right? So with a woo or a holler or whatever, you can make your vote. First of all, who of you thinks that the best Girl Scout cookie is the tag-along? All right, that was okay. How many of you think that it's the Thin Mint? Whoa, oh wow, all right. Well, that was more enthusiastic than I was expecting. So, so that's awesome, and it's also, you seem to be a lot like a lot of other people because the most popular Girl Scout cookie or the one that has the highest sales in America is the Thin Mint. That's the one. Way to go, everybody. And in honor of the Thin Mint, following the service out in the lobby, we're going to give you nothing at all. That's what we're going to give you. Nothing at all. But at least we were able to settle that issue and get things straight when it came to which is the best Girl Scout cookie. Now, today we're going to be trying to work on getting things straight and something else that's, that's a little more consequential than the Girl Scout cookie, okay? Today we're going to be working on getting things straight when it comes to the church, Because the truth is that the church has gone through rather turbulent times, and it's not just COVID times. There have been, this has started before that, and it has certainly continued to and been exacerbated by and accelerated through the COVID season. But the church has been in a circumstance where there have been challenges that have certainly been brought against it. There have been challenges that the church has made its way through. And what we want to do in this series that we're in right now is to sort out just where are we and where is it that we're going. This is really important. We've been circling around this as we've been in this series in focus, 
getting our mission or understanding, seeing our mission clearly. It's something that we have been considering, and it's important that we would, because if we don't understand right where we are, what the nature of things around us is all about, then we're never going to be at a place where we can maximize our effectiveness. And it's not just for the sake of saying, oh, look, we're effective. Oh, look, we're successful. It's because the person of Jesus Christ, his reputation is on the line here. And so this is really important that we would be focused in on where are things. Let's just honestly consider where are things and where is it that we do need to go. Now, there's really just two major things that we're going to consider or think about as we make our way along this idea here today. And the first of those is about acknowledging where we are. Acknowledging where we are. Where we are is a world with a, a world where the culture's view of Christians and the church is increasingly negative. You already know this. Barna has studied this. Other groups have done polls and surveys on this, and it consistently comes back that the, the, the people who, or the view of people who think that the church is, is something that is very positive in their mind, that group of people is on the decline rather dramatically, actually, and it's led to the rise of a group of people who've been well-documented, and you've probably heard the term by now. It's a term called the nuns, all right? Now, not the, not the N-U-N-S. That's a different group. We're talking here about the nuns, the N-O-N-E-S, all right? This is the group. The nuns are people who would respond to the question, what religion are you? By saying, nothing. Nothing in particular. Now, we've always known that there are atheists and there have been agnostics, but this is another group of people that have joined in. They would be considered part of the nuns, but they have been joined by this other group of people as well who would say, well, I'm nothing in particular. Today, 29% of people, 29% of people would find themselves or consider themselves in that category. And the reason that this is important for us to understand and is so compelling is because of the fact that this number just 10 years ago was 19%. It's risen 10 percentage points just in a decade, which is huge when it comes to survey data and how quickly it moves. And it corresponds to an equal fall in the number of people who would consider themselves or the, or the percentage of people who would claim Christianity. And that number has fallen actually from 75% down to 63%. This again is a dramatic change, a significant change. Though I want to be sure we understand exactly what's being said, because that can be just a little bit misleading. The definition of Christian in some of these studies is broad enough to include Protestants and Catholics and Orthodox Christian groups and Mormons. It's a pretty broad group of people, to say the least. Now, when it comes to the nuns, we've always known that there have been atheists and there have been agnostics all around us with us, and it's possible that some, if not most, of the rest of those aren't necessarily a group of committed Christians who've decided, well, I'm just going to now be nothing at all, that they're saying I'm going to completely flip from being in to now being completely out. That's probably not what is going on here in this circumstance, giving up their faith. It more likely represents a group of people who were really Christian in name only. They weren't Jewish and they weren't Muslim, and so yeah, I guess I'm Christian. Those sorts of people. And there's been a large number of those around us, and it's probably that that group has just 
willing or interested in reclassifying themselves. So it's not like there's a group of uh, very committed people who've now said, I don't want anything to do with that anymore, but rather the transition that we're just uh, suggesting. But it's significant to recognize that this is a group of people who at the very least are saying, I'm not looking to be identified even as a cultural Christian anymore. I'd rather be known as a nothing rather than as identified in that group. Important for us to understand. But there's another group that we need to acknowledge in addition to the nuns, and they've been nicknamed the Duns. All right? You've got the nuns and you've got the Duns. The Duns are those who have been part of the church on, the, on some level in the past, but they've chosen to leave. They've chosen to pick up and go. They might even still call themselves Christians in one of those broad categories, but they don't like what they see going on around them. Sometimes they're referred to as the SBNRs, which is spiritual but not religious. I'm spiritual. I want things to do with God. Yes, I'm definitely in that camp, but I'm not religious. And it's been suggested that upwards of 25% of people are in that population. Now, the natural question would come to us, well, why did they leave? And why is it that they don't want anything to do with the church? And that's certainly been studied a great deal. And topping the list of why it is that they've chosen to make their exodus is because they look inside the church, the place where they've been, and so they've seen it and they know it. They look inside and they say, well, you know what? The church is too hypocritical. It's too homophobic. It's too intolerant. It's too judgmental, and it's too political. And that's not what I've signed up for. That's not what I want my relationship to be, and so I'm getting out. And they are the duns. We're done with that. Now, a response could be to say to that, well, well, that's not pathway. And I would pray that that is a wrong perception when it comes to who are we and, and how is it that we are operating in our own Christian faith. But I think that it would be very foolish of us to just sort of dismiss the whole consideration without examining sort of where do we play a role? How are we involved? How might we be ones who would be in a camp to have this sort of accusation brought against us? I think some introspection is required. We need to ask ourselves, how are we contributing to that idea or that notion as a church or certainly as individuals as well in the way that we're living, in the way that we're engaging with other people. Because oftentimes it's not so much as somebody looks at a church and says, oh, well, this is what I now think about all of Christians because I see that church, but rather as they're looking at us as individuals. This is so much the case. We all have room to grow, and what is at stake isn't just our reputation, it's Jesus' reputation. And so it would be wrong of us to just say, well, that's their problem, because their problem is forming a barrier between our opportunity to reach them or Jesus' opportunity to have influence in their life because the baby is getting thrown out with the bathwater, as it were. I want to be a part of a church that draws people to Jesus. I want to be a person who draws people to Jesus instead of pushes them away. So, what are some of the things that we can do to get ourselves there? If this is the circumstance of where we are, then how do we get ourselves to that place where we can have that sort of influence? And that's the second step that we are going to look at to get things straight. There's an acknowledging where we are, that's where we start, and also then advancing where we must go. 
Advancing where we must go, this is the second thing. There's several things that we could say here, but it's not particularly complicated, all right? Several things to say, but not particularly complicated. I think we can just sort of boil it down to some root principles, and that's what we're going to do. The first key to advancing where we must go is to remember the call to mission. To remember the call to mission. I hope that you have a good sense of your mission and your call in life and that it's meaningful. I hope that for you. One man who was in the news just a couple weeks ago said he found his and it literally changed his life. What was it? It was creating the world's largest ball of human hair. I know, it sounds absolutely, and he was successful. He, set, he now holds the world record for creating a human ball of hair that is 225 pounds. I was going to show you a picture of it, but you don't want to see that. It's not something that you want to see, I assure you. You'd far rather see tagalongs and thin mints, right? Absolutely. But we've got something better. And here's the way that Pathway talks about it. Here's what we say about our own mission. We say that we are here to be and to make disciples of Jesus Christ. To be and to make disciples of Jesus Christ. That's really just shorthand for something that we call the Great Commission, the Great Commission. That's something that Jesus gave to his disciples and by extension to all of us as, as well. It comes from Matthew chapter 28. I'm sure it's something that most all of you are familiar with if you've been a part of the church for any period of time. And here's what it says. It says, Jesus says, Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. That's our call. That's the mission, and we're committed to it. It's about making disciples of Jesus, which means, in part, to reach out with the gospel to help them to understand what does it mean to be a believer in Jesus Christ? What does it mean to commit our lives to Him, and then taking those who have taken that step and moving them in the direction of now understanding how to grow deep in their own faith? And all of us are at some point along that spectrum, and Pathway's purpose is to help all of us take that next step along the journey to where God would be us to. This motivates everything that we do. It's central to our kids' ministry and to our, our youth ministry. It is central in our Bible study ministry, in our Sunday morning groups, in our small group ministry. It is central to what we do and how we think about ourselves as it comes to our outreach ministry and to, and to mission teams and to missionary support. This is central to who we are. This is foundational for us. It's why we're here. So if there's something that would threaten our ability to accomplish the mission that we're here to do, then we need to understand that. We need to see where that mission is getting hijacked because of some other circumstance, some other way that we might be perceived or that we might actually be acting that is leading to that sort of perception that is getting in the way of the reason we exist, which is for Christ and is for God. We need to understand that. If there's something that we can do to turn the nuns and the duns into Jesus ones, then that's something that we're going to be all about. And we need to be serious enough about examining where are we because we have a mission that we are bound to fulfill and we want to be sure that we're not putting any impediments or any barriers in the way of us getting that done. That's what this is all about is understanding this because the mission is too important. And for us to be effective in that call to mission that we've got, it leads us to the second of these things and it is this to reject the trap of dismissal. To reject the trap of dismissal. Let me tell you what I mean by that. The trap of dismissal is allowing anything that is outside the mission to get in the way of the mission. It is allowing the feelings that you might have toward the behaviors and actions of those on the outside of faith in Christ 
and allowing those to influence your actions and your behaviors and your thought and your speech to the point where it actually takes you to the place where you lose the opportunity to be heard by someone because of the nature of the way that you're choosing, choosing to live. You're willing to dismiss that person and their, their coming to Christ because of that which you feel so inclined to carry forward in the nature of your own living and life. That's what we're talking about. It's allowing your attitudes to take you to the place where someone might have a reason to suggest too hypocritical, too intolerant, too judgmental because they see something of that nature in our lives. Now, mass media, social media, those things are not doing us any favor in this regard. What sells, what gets clicks, what gets like, likes, what gets riled up, reposts and, and replies are incendiary things in nature. And that's why they're there. They're to try to get you riled up. They're to try to get you feeling in such a way that you are going to step out because that's what gets clicks and that's what gets likes and that's what they are there to try to do, to advance their own platform. And if you and your view and your influence is a casualty of that because of the way that you've responded to it, they don't care. It doesn't matter to them. They've gotten their click and they've gotten their like. We need to be very cautious about what we're doing in this regard. When we feed ourselves a steady diet of that stuff, whatever it is, whether it's in line with what we believe or whether it's in opposition to what we believe, what it does is it gets us fired up. I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with getting fired up, but we need to understand what exactly does that lead us to? How exactly do we respond to that when we're on fire, when we're burning? How and in what way do we carry that forward? What does that look like in us in how we move our way forward in that regard? That's important for us to understand because here's the thing. There's never an occasion when it's okay to sacrifice your witness in order to burn for some other cause. Let me say that again. There's never an occasion when it's okay to sacrifice your witness to burn for some other cause. The incendiary talk all around you will bait you to go there, but it's not something, it's not a hook that you want to get snagged on because it's there for its purpose, not to help you fulfill your purpose. And we need to be very, very cautious about how we move ourselves forward in this regard. It will bait you to go there. Once you are a Christ follower, you are that first and foremost, always and only. That has to be the driving force that orients us and moves us and leads us to action and that our action would be in keeping first and foremost with who we are as a Christ follower over and beyond and above anything else. Always. No exception. Now, one of the reasons that we can get tempted to get off course is because we see something that's offensive to us or offensive to God. And the first thing that we need to do is determine, well, which is it? Is it offensive to me or is it offensive to God? Because this makes a difference. Because if it's offensive to me, there's nothing that says, I have to respond or that I have to respond in kind, or that I need to get fired up, and that I need to reply, and I need to be sure that they understand my position on this, because you've offended me. There's nothing that says we need to do that. And oftentimes when we make the choice to, all right, let me tell you how it is, we're choosing to sacrifice our ability to fulfill the mission that we have. There's nothing wrong with allowing it an offense to go by. Jesus gave us a model of this over and over again. 
There were all sorts of things that would have been offensive to Jesus or offended what he had come to do or who he was, and he let it just go. Why? Because he had a different and a bigger and more important purpose that he was leading toward and, and moving toward. Now, you might say, well, it's, it's not just about me. Sometimes people say things that are offensive about, about God or insult his character and his, his nature and his holiness, and, and it may be appropriate for us to speak up, but how are you going to do it? See, one convicting reality is that Jesus never asked us to, con- to condemn anybody because of their sin. Jesus never asked us to condemn anybody that offended him. He didn't give us a ministry of condemnation. Jesus gave us a ministry of reconciliation. And that's very, very different. When we choose to condemn, we're out of our realm. And it's only going to serve to fuel the argument against Christ and what it truly means to be a Christ follower. Does that mean that we stop caring then about biblical perspectives, about biblical truth? Do we just say, okay, fine, anything goes? No, absolutely not. What it means is that we stop approaching those things out of a spirit of condemnation because that's not our realm. That's not our ministry. That's not what we have been called to. What we've been called to is reconciliation. See, you can't change that person's heart anyway. The only person who can change that heart is Jesus. And our ministry is one of reconciliation. It's one of the gospel. It's one of seeking to draw people into relationship with Jesus. And out of that, Jesus can work to change that heart. We need to be sure that we understand what our ministry is. And it could very well be that misunderstanding our ministry and choosing a ministry of condemnation instead of reconciliation is one of the very reasons that the rise of the nuns is a thing. And that the rise of the duns is a thing. And I think that we all can recognize things that we see around us, things that we know that have been done, maybe by churches that you know, maybe by Christians that you know, maybe by you that have served to advance that sort of thinking. In the Gospels, we're told the story of the woman that's caught in adultery. The Pharisees, what did they do? They condemned her, and they brought her, put her before Jesus, and demanded that Jesus condemn her. In fact, that they would all stone her. And if you know the story, you know that Jesus looked around, and he said, well, tell you what, whichever one of you is without sin, you cast the first stone. Everybody walked away. He said, woman, where are all of your accusers? Where are all of your condemners? She said, they've all left. Jesus said, then neither do I condemn you. Go now and leave your life of sin. Then there's John 3.16, which you know. John 3.17, the very next verse, says this, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. He doesn't condemn the woman at the well. He eats with sinners. The criticism Jesus does bring is against the Pharisees. Why? What did they do? They condemned. Wasn't their place. Wasn't their ministry. Now, is Jesus still serious about sin? Is this all about getting soft on things? Is that what you, no. 
Jesus is very, very serious about sin, but he knew that love and compassion would overwhelm condemnation. And so that's how he chose to live, and that leads us into the final piece that we're going to reflect on here. It's to reflect the model of Jesus. If you want to advance where we must go, reflect the model of Jesus. Jesus came into our world with a purpose, and that purpose was created a way for mankind to be reconciled to God, and he did it out of a heart of love and care and gentleness and compassion. And that's the model that he has left for us. He said some of the hardest things, but he did it in a way that didn't alienate. When I was in high school, my dad was the principal in charge of discipline at that school, which, of course, is what every kid wants. (laughs) Not. My dad never did give me a detention. That was one of the disciplines that he would hand out for kids, you know, when he never did give me a discipline, or never gave me a detention, which he will tell you to this day is not because I didn't do anything detention worthy, but just because I never got caught. That's what he's saying. Now, you can make up your own mind about, I know which way you'd make up your mind, I'm sure, but anyway, so one of the ways that he would get the students to come that he needed to talk to was there was this announcement that always went out at the beginning of class time that uh, you had to go to the office. And everybody knew what that meant. It meant they were going to meet with my dad. And so this girl who was sitting next to me in this class, her name got called and so off she went. And later in the period she came back and uh, I asked her how it went. And she said, well, your dad gave me three detentions, but I sure like him. That was his, I mean, that, that was his spirit. That's how he was able to have the most difficult conversations with people, still does to this day, in such a way that doesn't alienate, that allows there to be great unity. And it's something that I need to learn more of from him and from Jesus, because Jesus' driving principle was to speak the truth in love. He called us to do the same thing. Unfortunately, ever-increasing numbers of people in our world today are saying that that's not what they're getting from Christians. And that's not what they're getting from the church. Instead, what they're seeing are people who are too hypocritical, again, and too intolerant and judgmental. When some other religious people were wanting to get legalistic with Jesus and nail him down on the law, he sort of turned the corner on them in what has become pretty familiar to us all. He demonstrated this principle. They asked, what's the most important commandment? Jesus boiled it down to say, love the Lord your God, and love your neighbor as yourself. Wait, love your neighbor as yourself. As yourself. Do you think that it would mess with the worldview of people who think that Christians are intolerant and Christians are judgmental if we were to approach them, treating them as we would treat ourselves? (laughs) I think that would certainly take the hypocrisy question off the table be a beautiful thing to see and to to live out. Of course, that's probably just Jesus, right? He just uses hyperbole to try to get his point across. All right, well, let's let's consider Paul. Here's what Paul writes in Philippians chapter 2. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. 
Paul calls us to two things in those verses, which if we will do them would transform the perspective that the world has about Jesus and about Jesus' followers. One of the things he talks about there is living in humility. Living in humility. We don't do humility very well, typically, most of us. Humility says, I don't always have to be right. And even when I am right, I don't have to flaunt that. I don't have to put that out there in such a way so that you recognize that that I'm elevated over you are because I had it right and you didn't have it right. Look at me. Humility says that I can allow you to have center stage. It means that I'm demonstrating that I'm more interested in my relationship with you than I am in my power over you. And I want to live in that way. I want to demonstrate that where humility is seen in our world, it makes an impression. And where it's seen in a relationship with someone who operates by a different value system or lifestyle than you do, it makes an impression that transforms. And ultimately, that's what we want because that's the mission that we are on. He also says here, he elevates the idea of looking to the interests of others. This means considering their needs and what would honor them. It means listening to them, to what they really have to say, listening in a way that hears, that that processes what they're thinking, what they're going through, what they're feeling, rather than just sitting, waiting for your opportunity to talk and thinking about what you're going to say next. That's what he's getting at here. We have put out this challenge to you in this series that by the end of the series, and this is the final weekend, by the end of the month, that you would take the opportunity to engage in this sort of conversation with somebody who might be among the category of nuns or duns so that we might be able to demonstrate something different about Christ so that we might be able to enter into a relationship so that we might be able to listen and learn. And and that's one of the things I would encourage of you is that when you get in that conversation, if you haven't already, that you'd ask questions. Ask about them. That's one of the things that can help us to live in humility and to live looking to the interests of others is by asking the questions, making it about them instead of about us. We have the opportunity to transform the perspective of those who have dismissed the church and perhaps have dismissed Jesus too, but it's not going to happen as long as we're demanding a hearing and and using confrontational language and making sure that my rights are understood and my rights are advanced and that nobody gets an upper hand on me. Never going to happen in that context. It's going to happen by living out Jesus' model of love and consideration. Contrary to what anybody would have ever imagined, the Christian church, with its humble beginnings in the first century, ended up not long after being the official religion of the entire Roman Empire. It transformed everything. And guess what? It didn't happen because Christians stood up and said, I demand my rights. We demand to have equal footing and equal opportunity and equal status and equal representation. They didn't do that. It happened because they loved their neighbors. And they demonstrated the model 
of the one they were following, Jesus Christ. It happened because they served others in many circumstances, the very people who were persecuting them. And it transformed society. It transformed a group of people who were antagonistic toward Christ and toward the church to begin with. That can still happen. I know it's easy to get discouraged because we also live in a world that is quite antagonistic toward Christ and toward Christ's followers. And as we've suggested, we've put ourselves in many cases in that spot because of the way that we've lived. Well, if we take on the model of Christ, we can turn that around and we can see that same sort of transformation, I do believe, take place in our world. You say, no, that's too big of a job. That's too big of a nation. That's too big of a change. Well, the Roman Empire had a greater percentage of the world at that point than we see here in our own country, that's for sure. And even if we can't transform a nation, I believe beyond the shadow of a doubt that if we all would take up this mindset, this attitude, and live out this spirit in the spirit of Christ, that we would see it happen in our neighborhoods and in our community. I don't think there's any doubt about it. The question is, will we do that? Are we willing to own up to our own culpability, whatever that might be as an individual? And I certainly want to do that as a church. To ask how is, it can, how is it that we can more represent who Jesus is and what it means to be a real Christ follower? Because as we do that, what's going to happen is that we're going to be bringing our mission, our purpose, all in focus. We're going to see the mission clearly. We're going to be getting things straight. And we're going to be able to accomplish the mission that we've been given. A mission that the church hasn't always been great at getting done, capital C, and sometimes local church C as well. We want to move that forward, and we can. We have all of the tools. We just need to use them. And I pray that we would be bold enough and convinced enough to do so. We can begin it with those conversations that we're to have as a part of this series. I pray that you would take that seriously because doing so demonstrates your commitment to getting in and to living this out. I don't say this in any sort of accusatory tone. I'm right there with you. We need to do this together. But I so much desire that we'd be able to have this sort of impact in the lives of people, that it's something that we need to be called to, something that we need to open up our minds and our hearts to get done. So I pray that you'd be prayerful before God, asking him, what does this mean for me? What does it mean for me to reach out with a love and care and compassion with Christ instead of something else that I might otherwise have been drawn to into living in, in that spirit and with that heart. Let us together make that our commitment. Heavenly Father, thank you for the example that we have 
here in the scriptures. And we want to be transparent in our own minds, in our own hearts, as we do our own evaluation of who we are, where we are, as we think about our engagement with our neighbors and our friends and our co-workers and, and our social media presence, whatever it might be. Lord, we don't want there to be anything in the way that we live, in the way that we act, in the way that we talk that would bring dishonor to your name. So Lord, help us to do an honest evaluation of where we are and where we can go. Help us to be mindful of the fact that we've been called to something and that anything that we would choose to do that might feel good or might feel retaliatory, that detracts from your glory is something that is outside of your will. Lord, help us to be mindful that you have not called us to a ministry of condemnation, but a ministry of reconciliation. And may all of what we do and all of what we say be motivated toward the end of being the best that we possibly can toward that end by loving people into the kingdom of God. Lord, cause our hearts to break for those who are in need of the gospel so that we're willing to respond in humility and looking to the interests of others to get it done, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.